Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQBD Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the U.S. has seen a massive surge in coronavirus cases. Even more troubling, an unprecedented rise in hospitalizations. We look at the situation in the Midwest and what California can do to prevent it from getting as bad here. But first, is the surge in cases making you rethink seeing people or traveling for the holidays? What are you grappling with as you approach holiday planning? Tell us by calling 866-733-6786, posting comments at KQBD Forum on Twitter or Facebook, or emailing forum at kqbd.org. We want to hear from you after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Scientists, physicians, public health officials are all deeply concerned about the holiday season as coronavirus cases surge to levels unseen in the U.S. and people from different households are more likely to gather and celebrate. What are you doing to keep yourself and others safe over the holidays? Are you grappling with canceling travel plans, seeing loved ones in person? or maybe you're already working to make a virtual gathering special. Joining me now to take your questions about how to navigate holiday expectations in a pandemic is Dr. Niha Nanda, Medical Director of Infection Preve- Prevention infection prevention at Keck Medicine of the University of Southern California. Dr. Niha Nanda, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Very nice to be here. You know, several listeners told KQED Forum yesterday how they're dealing with the holidays, or at least how they're trying to, including whether to travel or see people. And I'd like to share a few right off the bat, if I could. This listener tweeted, for example, that he's grappling with having to break the news to in-laws that the, quote, socially distanced Thanksgiving they invited us to is indistinguishable from regular Thanksgiving dinner. So we can't do that, and it's because we want to protect them. Another listener writes, my adult son and his wife caught COVID in August in Mexico. They had mild to moderate illness. They claim to have antibodies but haven't been tested. What is your opinion about how protected I would be if I visit them for Thanksgiving and stay for a few days? I mean, do you have any thoughts on that, Dr. Nanda? Uh, Yes, of course, and it's not easy to navigate. Uh, But I'll tell you, I think Having thought through this, and like all of us have lived through it, there are some themes that have become obvious, and we should learn from this. Um, there are there are low risk activities. 
then there are medium risk activities, and then there are very high risk activities. And it all comes down to our, our, uh, ability, our, our, our willingness at a personal level to take risk. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, some people are very risk averse and some people are not so risk averse. So the lowest risk activity for any kind of get together will be a virtual forum. And I think I'm preaching to the choir when I say that. And let's say a medium risk activity, as we are thinking about Thanksgiving, it would be perhaps meeting with people from your own community in a way that you're physically distanced, distanced. and if possible, if the client, if the weather allows, make it outside and try and mask when you're not eating, when you're engaging in eating, which you will in Thanksgiving, try and maintain that distance. And perhaps prior to meeting, consider relatively isolating yourself from from areas where you think you could be exposed. Then if you think about medium risk activities, let's talk about if you're going to a pumpkin patch. Maybe you want to go to a pumpkin patch in your community and you want to go to a place where they are good about masking, where they are good about physical distancing. Now, the other uh, end of it is high risk activities. That's going to malls that are densely crowded, that are not open, that are not ventilated, or like having a huge party where uh, you have people from all over the country getting together. So these are the different buckets in which I think is helpful to think and then figure out what fits well for you. Um, Something that you mentioned, there are people who are planning things, uh, but are not, uh, but their guests are not very comfortable with the setup that they have right now. So I think in that situation, it would be sharing communications like this, like we are having right now, having engaging in a dialogue that, you know, this is what I think. What do you think? Because we all want to be safe at at the end of it. And so is having antibodies any safer (laughs) if you've had it before and you're going to engage with someone who has antibodies, is that a guarantee of safety? And should you be doing all the same things that you would do with somebody who you don't know their status? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not an easy question. Uh, first, everybody who gets infected does not mount an immune response. And, and of the immune responses you mount, there are only a fraction that we measure, and that is measured by the blood test. Now, when when you get the result of that blood test, we know the answer is yes or no. We don't know the amount or the level of antibody that you have, and we don't know the level of antibody that is required for us to fight that infection. So the simple answer is having an antibody level alone cannot tell us if you're immune. Well, this listener asks, can you discuss how to safely share food at small gatherings? Should it be done at all? And if so, can they provide any guidance as to how it can be done safely? 
Dr. Nanda? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. <laughs> so uh, we're talking about sharing food. Um, so perhaps in, so, so the risk of transmission there is going to be by way of, um, of, uh, of, of indirect transmission. By that, I mean, you know, it's the food that we have on the table. We want to make sure we are using utensils that are dedicated to each person, perhaps have disposable utensils. And I think it is achievable as I'm thinking through it after having a few conversations earlier in the day about it. Uh, dedicate the utensils and the plates to each person. Try and keep it distant. This, uh, try and keep your distance when you're sitting together. And in preparation, be very good about the person who's the chef here or the cook who's going to cook food. Um, and uh, I think perhaps it is doable. Yeah. So, you know, we've heard a lot, Dr. Nanda, about why heading into the winter would drive up case counts. Basically, people spending more time indoors and gathering with other people, even despite the warnings or mandatory uh, regulations from the state, or just people who have pandemic fatigue. They've been doing this for eight months. They're, they're exhausted, and they also are very much in need of, of in-person interaction. But I am curious, is it just human behavior in the winter that causes the virus to go, uh, to for virus cases to rise, for COVID-19 infections to rise? Or is it the makeup of the virus itself that could potentially make it stronger in the winter? Yeah, so, you know, these are very good questions. The answers to which we don't have, we don't have definitive answers. Um, what we have learned that this virus doesn't behave like a seasonal influenza virus. Because if you look at our entire country, we had a surge in summer. And now again, our numbers are rising again. Uh, and it obviously doesn't obey the rules around temperature at all. Um, so it comes down to a lot of it has to do with human behavior. And the reason why we are relying on human behavior so much today is we don't have ammunition. We don't have our tools around therapeutics and vaccines, which we have heard very good news just earlier this week. But till that is distributed and we have the right immunity in the community, I think we will have to rely on our human behavior. And the reason why we are so worried about the upcoming winter and it looks dark is because we know it's going to get cold. People are going to be more inside where, again, you rely more on ventilation. You, more, you rely more on air circulation mm -hmm. and keeping that distance may not be a luxury that everybody has. And you are not being able to away, avail of the outdoors that we have so nicely believed in in some warmer parts of the country. And we have numbers for that. We know that the risk of transmission is about 19 times lower when you're outside compared to when you're inside. So I think a lot of it will have to do with 
how well we discipline ourselves in the coming winter. And to answer your question, it may just be our human behavior yes. uh, that's going to govern that. Well, let me go to some calls and remind listeners, tell us, what are you grappling with as we approach the holidays? That number, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also tell us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Peter in San Francisco, join us. Yes, hi. Uh, We hear about outdoors being much better than indoors, and uh, the question I've got is, has to do with fans and air circulation. Number one, if we use a fan to move the air around and sort of dissipate uh, whatever air is standing, is that helpful, number one? And number two, would it be even more helpful to use a fan or simply open the windows with cross ventilation to get to enhance the movement of outside air in and the whole movement of air through the, through the place that we're in? Is that helpful? Peter, thanks. Dr. Nanda? Yes. Peter, these are very good questions. And I think what you have brought up, fan and opening windows, you are talking about increasing the air circulation in some way or the other in an enclosed space. So yes, it's definitely better than a room that will not have cross ventilation, that will not have a fan. However, it's not as good as being outdoors where the uh, the rate at which the air is getting circulated is typically higher than what we can achieve in a room, in a regular household room. And Peter, thanks very much for the question. And again, we're talking with Dr. Niha Nanda, Medical Director of Infection Prevention at Keck Medicine of the University of Southern California. We're taking your questions about how you are approaching the holidays amid coronaviruses coronavirus cases spiking nationwide. You can join the conversation by emailing your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org, getting in touch with us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or giving us a call, 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Nina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how people are navigating the holidays amid this pandemic with Dr. Nihan Nanda, Medical Director of Infection Prevention at Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. And you, our listeners, are with us. This listener writes, COVID is a great excuse to avoid the holiday travel cost and stay safe this year. This listener tweets, why is it everyone talks about the this like it's some sort of mystery? Whenever we ease up on social distancing and wearing masks, we get more cases. What are your questions or comments? 866-733-6786 is the number. Email address forum at kqed.org or reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Let me go to Janet in Santa Rosa. Hi, Janet. Hey, So um, I have kind of a complicated situation coming up. Um, We live in a cross-generational household with a 14-month-old. And my daughter and her partner and the baby are um, planning on 
visiting in-laws um, who are coming from other areas in Colorado. So they're driving there, but the mother-in-law is um, flying. And um, they were all talking about wearing masks and getting tested and, you know, the social distancing when they're there. Um, but obviously the baby cannot wear a mask. She is going to be, want, you know, everybody's going to want to interact with her. And so I'm concerned that she will be a vector for the virus coming back. Mm. Thanks, Janet. Nihananda. Yeah. Um, so you touch on some very good points that when you have cross-generational families, we know the risk is higher. The question is what we can do now to reduce the risk. And I think trying to quarantine ourselves before we are getting together would be one approach. Uh, trying to make sure the household that has the baby um, uh, make sure they are not coming in contact with others. The person who's taking the flight can do a couple of things to make sure that he or she is safe on the flight. Um, they shouldn't travel if they are sick. When they are traveling, as we've learned, it doesn't seem so much the flight or being on in the airplane that's as much of a risk as we are learning. However, it's the process of getting to the airport and after that, where if we are good about physical distancing, we can mitigate risk. And when you're on the airplane, now we know that if, because of the way the ventilation is in the airplane, if you make sure the nozzle of the airflow that's right on top of us, if that's directed towards our face, we can, and, and that's really gonna be um, a gush of fresh air, we can reduce the risk. Make sure you're decontaminating the surfaces around your seat where you're sitting, importantly, the tray table. That person can be good about going to the restroom also in terms of reducing uh, environmental cross-transmission to him or herself. And when they actually get together, if they can think of a way that they can leverage of outdoors um, and masking and, uh, and, and making sure anybody who even has seasonal allergies that day stays away and doesn't interact with the group, I think that'll go a long way, short of trying to do this virtually, which I, I, I'm not sure if that can be accommodated in a setup where they've already planned so much. Related to traveling, the listener wrote yesterday, I'm 68 and have reservations to fly to the Midwest to visit my older brother and his wife for Christmas. Is flying as safe as the airlines say, or should I cancel my travel plans and travel next summer. I mean, in this particular case, this person is flying to what is very clearly a hot zone right now. What do you recommend? Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you, I think it all comes down to what kind of risk we at a personal level are willing to take. And I'll share with you the exact numbers as we have them today. So there was a study that was done in Greece where they looked at it's an international airport. They looked at 18 flights that were coming in or leaving. And they had around 2,200 passengers and 110 crew members. Of those, 
I believe a very small number got infected. It was, I think, about 21. There were only 21 people in a group of 2,300 people got infected, were index cases. Let me say they were, didn't get infected, they were index cases. And then they contact traced around 900 people after that who had traveled or had contact with these people in the act of flying. And the positivity rate in that was 0.6%, as in only five people developed lab-confirmed infection. So what this tells me is that the attack rate in the act of flying is very low, since the positivity rate was only 0.6%. However, getting to the airport and getting to your destination once you arrive at the airport, that has more risk because there is a congregation there. There is a group of people. You do have to get into the cab. So the risk is there, uh, not so much around the flying piece per se, but there is a risk before and after. And if you navigate through it well, perhaps you'll be able to reduce the risk, but you are taking on risk the minute you decide to fly, especially to an area where there is a surge of cases right now. Do you think people who travel to, say, the Midwest, right, that's seeing a surge in cases, should self-quarantine after they return? I think that would be a wise thing to do. Um, though I would anticipate in the next few weeks or by the time these people come back, um, I'm, uh, you know, it seems like there will be similar surges in other areas too. But yes, to do our part, that would be a good thing. Well, let me go to Mary in Concord. Hi, Mary. Hi. Um, I'm calling because I just wanted to share what we're doing different this year. Um, my husband and my daughter and I live in the Bay Area. and We moved up here a few years ago. We don't have too many family or friends in the area. And my daughter is almost two and she has a lung disease. She has cystic fibrosis. So we've been taking this very seriously. We usually go to Southern California where I have a really big family. They all live down there, but we're not making that trip at all because there's just too many people, and I don't think it's possible for us to do it safely. So instead, my one sister who lives in Eugene, Oregon, is going to drive down, and she's going to stay with us. But she's um, we're not planning on masking in the house. She's going to be fully immersed with us, but I feel like it's almost like a good compromise instead of, um, you know, trying to figure out how to do it safely with a lot of people just do it full on with one person and that's been our compromise she's going to drive down and self-quarantine before so i think it i still think it should be fine but i just wanted to share what what we're doing this year mary thanks i mean what mary's saying dr nanda also just reminds me of so many things that's also being emphasized to me as i read other people's tweets and comments for example this listener writes please advise indians who are getting ready to celebrate diwali this weekend we make up for being thousands of miles away from family by socializing and diwali is a big social event here in the u.s jay writes we have the opportunity to join a small group of friends to dine outdoors at a restaurant on their patio how would you rate the risk of dining outdoors at a restaurant i mean I mean, what we're really asking people to do, Dr. Nanda, is a lot. I mean, we're really asking them to assess levels of risk, almost to be, you know, their own public health officials to some extent and create their own policy. I mean, how, what should people do? How do they navigate that? Yeah, I, I think you said it very well. It's almost like every household 
has their own policies around COVID. And, and I think we, you know, for multiple reasons that we won't get into that, it has come down to it that we have to have our own policy. I really like what our last listener talked about that they've come up with a compromise and the person who's participating and celebrating with them has taken all the measures. It is not easy to, to, to reiterate what you said because now we are expected to hardwire a practice that doesn't entail socializing, which is what both these festivals are all about. Um, and I think we, the best way to do it now is, I think I'm reiterating, I think what all of you already know is do it virtually, but in that we can be innovative, maybe reduce it to people who we know very well or who perhaps we formed a pod with in the recent past. So we are comfortable with their whereabouts. Um, it's not an easy task, but I think, uh, it's time for innovation. And well, perhaps we live by some of the traditions we create now down the road in the post-pandemic era. Yes. Well, Dr. Nanda, I know you need to leave us, but I did want to remind listeners that the state does have mandatory rules on private gatherings that were issued last month. Things like no more than three households can gather. It must be outdoors or spaces with three open sides, masks worn at all times, except when eating. Initially, these were ridiculed in some circles. But do you think now that the state is on point? Uh, yes, I'll tell you, California as a state has done very well in terms of sharing their thoughts and mandates. So restricting the number of families, like you said, three families, that's a very good idea. It's nicer to know that those families have been a part of your pod. Um, yes, all the mandates that you just uh, mentioned are very good to follow. Dr. Niha Nanda, Medical Director of Infection Prevention at Keck Medicine of the University of Southern California. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And joining me now to help us understand what's happening in the rest of the country and what California could face if we don't remain vigilant. Alexis Madrigal, staff writer at The Atlantic and runs The Atlantic's COVID tracking project. Thanks so much for joining us, Alexis Madrigal. Thank you for having me. Can you just help us understand how bad it is out there, especially in the Midwest and parts of the Southwest? I mean, I, I think we have to level with people. It's really bad right now. Um, we're in the worst um, stage of this pandemic since the spring. And I think people need to prepare themselves for that. Um, just to run through a, a couple of numbers. I mean, cases are up across the country 40% from last week, 40%. Wow. Um, hospitalizations are up 20%. Deaths are now rising as well, up 20%. And I think we've made ourselves feel better about this pandemic because we know there are vaccines on the way and treatments have improved. But when we really look at the ratio of cases to deaths, um, it, things haven't really gotten much better since August, which means that if you are seeing rapidly rising cases, you're gonna see a lot more deaths. And I think you know, that's centered in the Midwest, but it's everywhere now. Um, and I. I I just, it's time to sort of reset, I think, and look at this pandemic again um, and not assume that the things that we did over the summer and fall, um, which we thought were working, are, are still working because the numbers say they're not. 
Can you talk about the number of hospitalizations and why that is such an important number, especially for people tempted to believe that what we're seeing right now in these increased cases is just more testing, you know, getting at the level of virus that has already been out there? Yeah, absolutely. It's not more testing. Um, uh, tests were up 12% last week and cases were up 40%. Um, when we look um, at the numbers that HHS, the Health and Human Services, puts out for test positivity, we're seeing you know higher test positivity than at any time since May. Um, but we're doing you know more than a million tests a day now. Back then, we were doing a couple hundred thousand tests. So we're not just there's more infections. It's not we're we are detecting more cases, but there's also just a lot more infections. Um, the hospitalizations are important because they're much less influenced by um, by how many tests that we've done. Um, you know, even during the spring when we had very few tests, most people who were in the hospital could get a test. And the important milestone that we passed um, just in the past couple of days is there are now more people currently hospitalized than at any time in the pandemic. That includes the sunbelt surge uh, over over the summertime, and that includes the the springtime. And the truth is, we don't see that reversing anytime soon. Um, the states that are getting hit hard right now in the Midwest, as well as Texas, are big states. You know, this started off in Wisconsin and the Dakotas, but over the last few weeks, that really spread into, you know, Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Um, and those are big populous states that are now going to show a lot, a lot of hospitalization growth. And the real question is, where does it stop? Because we're not really taking the steps necessary to stop the spread of this virus. And, you know, we just don't know, we don't know where, where this is going to stop. Um, certainly over the next few weeks, we've baked in a lot of what's going to happen. Um, and that, that's where the country stands. What is the relationship between increased hospitalizations and increased deaths? Sure. So in the early days of the pandemic, if you a very large percentage of the people, I mean, we're talking like close to a quarter, I think is the number of people would die. That number has come way down, which is a really good thing. It's a really good thing. Um, some of that has to do with just doctors um, learning how to treat, uh, nurses learning how to care for, for patients. Some of it is um, the drugs that have been brought to bear like steroids. Um, but the, the problem is that the numbers have stopped dropping um, after August. So, you know, when we talk about new treatments, at least my assumption had been that, um, the treatments kept getting better, that it wasn't sort of like, oh, we made some progress and now we've been plateauing. Um, but that is what we're seeing. And, you know, we don't have academic studies yet on what has happened, you know, in September, of course. Um, but we can look and we can just see the ratios and the numbers that we have. Um, and, and it's not good. And, you know, well, I'll, I'll leave it there to just to yeah, leave it at just answering your question. And the other thing that I thought was so important that you pointed out in the piece that you just did for The Atlantic um, with your co-writer was just how, like, 
improved outcomes, doing better once you're hospitalized depends so much on getting the highest standard, standard of care. But if a hospital is overwhelmed, they have a really hard time providing it. And the other piece of that that I was also interested in highlighting to our listeners was that you know, you were pointing out that when the surge hit in New York, medical workers from all over the country were able to fly in to help. But if you have the surge happening um, at the same time across this country, you don't have that kind of support. And so all of those things contribute potentially to increased deaths. Is that? That's, that's right. I mean, we assume that sort of standard of care, right, um, our ability to care for particularly hospitalized patients um, is something that ha has improved and that will stay better. But that's a variable and it's a variable that is highly influenced by what a hospital has on hand, its resources, its staff. And one thing we know already, one of my other colleagues, Ed Young, is working on a piece about um, staffing shortages and they're hitting all over the country. And it's much harder to surge staff into places like the Dakotas. Um, it's just because, you know, people in Ohio already are having problems and so they need to stay put there, you know? And I think this is really, um, this is really a, a, a tough moment because there, there isn't really an easy answer for a lot of these places. And you've seen this, that in North Dakota, um, nurses, who have tested positive but are asymptomatic are, are getting sent back to work. We're talking about coronavirus cases spiking and hospitalizations spiking nationwide with Alexis Madrigal, a staff writer for The Atlantic, who runs The Atlantic's COVID tracking project. And what are your questions about what is happening in the rest of the country? Are you concerned about how the numbers are rising? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. More after the break. Stay with us. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The U.S. has been seeing a massive surge in coronavirus cases, more than 140,000 yesterday. Even more troubling, an unprecedented rise in hospitalizations, more than 65,000. California is now seeing an uptick in cases as well, with the status of a dozen or so counties already changing for the worse. We're talking about it all with Alexis Madrigal, a staff writer for The Atlantic, who runs The Atlantic's COVID tracking project. And you, our listeners, 866-733-6786, 866 6733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. And Alexis Madrigal, why do you think what we're seeing in the Southwest, the Midwest, other parts of the country could foreshadow what is in store for us in California? Um, well, you know, just the fact that it's the, the virus is hitting harder everywhere uh, right now means that California is going to have to get luckier. There'll have to be some factor um, that we haven't considered. Obviously, you know, here in Northern California, we have the weather working for us. You know, it's not Wisconsin here. I mean, I live in Oakland and I'm 
really hoping that we're able to hold out here. Um, it's, it's unclear though, right now. Um, we think this is probably more behavioral, like people have just kind of given up, they're going indoors more, et cetera. That's really driving a lot of this transmission, although people aren't, aren't totally sure about that. And it seems like at least looking around me in my own life here in California, I think we're doing a great job on masking in Northern California. So let's hope that it's, that, that really helps a lot and that it's the, you know, it's really consistent, the usage. Um, but I also feel like people are tired and I get that people are tired. They're fatigued of having to do so many disruptive things and have daily life not work the way um, that it long has. And what, well, let me read a couple of comments. The listener writes, why are public health experts not emphasizing actions like wearing masks, social distancing, and continuing to postpone gatherings? I wonder if framing the issue as an individual choice based on our personal risk profile allows people to stay in denial of their risk. This listener writes, I'm so frustrated hearing from friends, relatives, and coworkers about no masks being worn by their relatives, coworkers, and their family. I mean, one of the things that I hear you saying, Alexis Madrigal, is that a lot of it is behavior, which also, I mean, in a weird way, is a little bit of a silver lining in the sense that that this surge that we're seeing in other places doesn't have to be inevitable, right? I mean, it doesn't have to get that bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I want to say one other thing, which is just that, you know, we do put a lot on people to change their individual behavior, but that's only because the government has failed us so extremely at the national level. And I think it's just worth keeping, keeping that in mind. You know, we haven't had a coordinated uh, effort with smart testing strategies for the whole country. Um, we just haven't seen the kind of response that we would have needed to, to battle this back. And I, as much as I, you know, like everybody else, get upset when I see people who, you know, aren't wearing masks or um, doing unsafe things, I also think to myself, you know, the job of government is to protect us from exactly this kind of threat. Um, and the, the failure to do so um, is, is just unconscionable. And at this point, it seems like this is what the government is fine with. You know, not, the national government has done nothing over the last couple of weeks to change the course of things, even though they are seeing the same numbers that we are. Well, that is just a perfect segue to our next guest, Dr. Salim Gounder, infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist and host and producer of the podcast American Diagnosis and Epidemic, which focuses on the coronavirus pandemic. And Dr. Salim Gounder has also just been appointed to President-elect Biden's coronavirus task force. Salim Gounder, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. I mean, basically what Alexis Madrigal is laying out is that you know, you and Biden will inherit a national crisis of tragic proportions. I mean, we are hearing about 1,400 deaths a day right now, which would put us on track to have more than 100,000 more dead by Biden's inauguration. I mean, what are the conversations on the task force? What do you think needs to be the first order of business? Because what Madrigal is saying is that the nation is sorely lacking leadership right now. Well, I think the first order of business is what can we do today? What can we do now and not wait weeks until the inauguration? Uh, and I think one thing that every single American citizen can do that is in their power to do right now is to wear a mask. 
Uh, this has unfortunately been politicized uh, and, and that's really problematic because it's one of the best interventions that we have to reduce the spread of the coronavirus. And quite frankly, it's an intervention that does not impede uh, business and, and schools from, from going on, from remaining open. Um, and so it's, it's really an intervention that has minimal economic impact. It, it would be like politicizing the use of toilet paper. It's a basic hygienic um, intervention. It's, it's something that should really not have been politicized. The other thing that we are hearing about, uh, Alexis Medical is talking about staff shortages at hospitals that are seeing spikes or are being overwhelmed. We're also hearing about shortages of PPE again. Is that true? We are, in fact, seeing shortages of PPE. Uh, this is something that we saw in the spring. We have been in rationing mode uh, all throughout the summer and fall months. Uh, and this is something we saw coming. We have been asking, me and other doctors and public health workers and other scientists have been pleading with the Trump administration to please invoke the Defense Production Act and scale up production of personal protective equipment. And sadly, this, these calls for help have not been heeded. Nothing has been done uh, by the current administration on that front. Alexis Madrigal, I mean, if you had to say the very, what President Trump could be doing right now, we're, we're talking about, you know, trying to get our PPE numbers up, stockpiles up, we're talking about wearing masks. But you know, all the data that you've collected, all the all the things that you're seeing that is driving the data, what do you think is some of the key things that need to be done in this administration before January 20th? Well, I would mostly like to defer to, to Dr. <laughs> Gander on this one. But I will say one thing as from my role seeing with a lot of contact with the public around these numbers, they need to depoliticize the, the pandemic now. They need to pull down all the misinformation that has been put out, uh, that people aren't actually dying, that these are not serious cases, that it's just testing. All these things have created a lot of distrust in the numbers, created distrust in our public health institutions, and that that needs to stop because it, it's, it's really something they just have to stop doing you know, um, as opposed to spinning up um, the Defense Production Act, which we don't, I don't think this administration is going to do that. Um, yeah. I hope the Biden administration does. Um, but they are doing a lot of active harm with the misinformation that they're putting out. And that part can stop tomorrow. <laughs> Dr. Gounder, I mean, that's such an important point. Is one of the first orders of business improving the messaging around all this? Well, I think you're going to see a very big change in terms of who are the personalities and the tenor of the communication. I think you're going to see people like Nancy Messonnier and Anne Shuchat, in addition to folks that people are already familiar with, like Dr. Fauci, really leading the communication on behalf of the administration um, come January. I think you're going to see doctors and scientists and public health experts leading this, not politicians. And unfortunately, regardless of the um, party, political party of the politician, whenever something is said by a politician about something like the pandemic, people on of the opposing party will simply not believe that message. So it really needs to come from somebody who's apolitical, who is a doctor, scientist, or other kind of expert. 
And again, we're talking with Dr. Celine Gounder, infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist, and also now a member of the Coronavirus Advisory Task Force that President-elect Biden has put together. Alexis Madrigal is with a staff writer for The Atlantic, who also runs the COVID tracking project. And you are listeners, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. This listener writes, what do you think America has in common with the Western European countries? that we are unable to control this pandemic, whereas so many other countries have been able to control it far better. Dr. Gounder? Well, I think our messaging, our politicization of the pandemic have been at the heart of our dysfunctional response. I do think there are other aspects, though, that are challenging in the United States. Specifically, we are a federalist system. um, And while you have the CDC, um, which is one of the really the top public health agency in the world, it's largely a technical support agency. They support local and public health departments. They provide funding to those departments, but the bulk of the work is done by those local jurisdictions. And so you really have um, what um, Ed Young has called a patchwork pandemic where every single state and local health department is doing things their own way. And we really need a coordinated national response here. Well, let me go to caller Sarah in Portola Valley. Hi, Sarah. Hey, good morning. Thanks very much. So obviously I'm Australian. You can tell by my accent. And I just, my mind is just blown away by the way the U.S. has handled this pandemic. I have a son in boarding school in Sydney. He's been back at school since May. They shut down for two weeks. We've had a fairly well-run coordinated federal response. It's not politicized. Australians are being pretty obedient. We are not allowed to leave our country without an exemption. The borders are shut down. You can't travel between states. <laughs> and then in the US, it's been a free-for-all. And it's just so disappointing to me to see this country handle this so poorly when there is no reason whatsoever that the US should be in this situation. That's my very strong feeling. It's just so sad. It's terrible. Sarah, thanks for saying that. And I know I asked you this earlier, Dr. Gounder, but I wonder, is there any more that you can share just about what specifically the priorities are of the task force at this point? Well, I think one major priority is scaling up testing. Um, That's something that's actually been discouraged by the current administration, but it is impossible to control a virus when you do not know who is infected, who is transmitting and where. Um, And so it's sort of like we're seeing this tip of the iceberg with the people who are really getting sick and ending up in the hospital. But there are many, many, many more infections in the community than that. And the only way to detect those is to massively scale up testing. You know, some of the other things we're going to be talking about um, will also include how do we get these new vaccines that are finally um, going to be hopefully approved before too long here. Uh, How do we get those out to the to the first responders and the high risk populations and then later the general public and really at the center of all of the uh, plan and response is going to be a lot of attention paid to health equity. Um, We've seen certain communities and particular communities of color hit very hard by COVID. And that's something we will be very, very much paying close attention to uh, as we move forward. We're talking about coronavirus cases and hospitalization spiking nationwide. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Bob asks, is there any data on the percent of infected people who were following CDC guidelines versus those who weren't? Alexis Madrigal, are there data on that? Um, No, 
not really. I mean, I, I think people have tried um, different groups like Delphi at Carnegie Mellon have tried to, you know, pull in different data sets that attempt to account for that sort of thing. Like um, there's some mask wearing survey data people have been able to find, mobility data. But honestly, those things haven't proven to be highly predictive. And I think it's largely about the data, not that the guidelines are not effective. Um, but it's, I mean, I, I would say just, you know, look at the Asian countries that have had such tremendous success um, from the beginning with universal masking. Um, and I think in so many cases, you know, Americans can learn a lot by taking that comparative view uh, across the world and seeing like, well, what countries have done a good job controlling COVID and what were they doing there? Um, and I think that that alone tells you that masks um, are, are something that really everybody um, should be wearing. And again, I, I totally agree with Dr. Gounder, like it shouldn't be a political thing. It is the easiest thing in the world. And it's a, uh, a, a personal thing. You don't have to give anything up. You just have to put a mask on. Well, let me go to Patrick at Stanford. Hi, Patrick. Hi, yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask, too, especially since doctor is on, um, I listened to a UCSF roundtable of uh, some pulmonologists that I, I got a link to. I'm not a doctor. But um, one of them talked about how wearing a mask can actually help protect you, not only um, protect other people from you giving them the virus. Um, and it was kind of like a... Uh, situation where you might still get the virus, but you might get an initial viral load that's lower and you might get a more survivable, survivable case. So I think if people knew that, you know, you could protect yourself as well, we might actually get more people to wear masks. Patrick, thanks. I know that there, the CDC, I think, has adopted this as well, right, Dr. Gounder? Can you talk a little yes. bit about it? Yeah, Patrick. Yeah, saying. that's right. That's right. So they have come out and, and confirmed, um, based on their review of the science, that yes, indeed, masks protect you and they protect others. This was something that we were not certain about in the beginning. And I, I do think, unfortunately, there has been some very confusing messaging on masks. It's for a couple of different reasons. One, um, we were still learning in the beginning. We There's a lot we didn't know. We have been learning as we have gone. And in the process of that, have understood that masks protect ourselves as well as others. Uh, the other piece of that is early on during the pandemic, when personal protective equipment, including masks, was in such short supply, uh, the concern was that there would be a rush on masks, as we in fact saw by the lay public, and that healthcare providers did not have what they needed. So, you know, I think unfortunately those messages got muddled and created a lot of confusion about the value of wearing a mask. Well, Andrew writes, a lot of people will be totally devastated by this disease, even if they don't die. Lots of people who get this disease will need to go to the hospital, and so many have no health insurance or very bad health insurance. I mean, what Andrew is pointing to is just this larger situation that that we all have to prepare for, that I know that you're talking about on the task force with your colleagues there. But I think also, I'm just wondering, Dr. Gounder, if you could just help us I don't know, process what we're about to go through. As you talk about the work and the focus and the gearing up on testing and the new messaging around masks and so on and, and PPE, the reality of the situation is that ultimately you and Biden and 
cannot really do anything. I mean, you lack the authority to really mobilize the federal response until he's inaugurated. So what can we do uh, between now and then as we really do face the prospect of potentially hundreds of thousands more dead in that time? Well, we can provide leadership in other ways um, and indicate what our plans are, what kind of guidance we plan to provide, um, and already be working with governors and state and local health departments um, to provide that information, to, to collaborate with them. And it's important to remember in the United States, the private sector is a very major player in, in terms of the health system. And things like vaccine delivery, scaling up testing, you're going to have to bring in um, the, the private sector in those conversations. Uh, mm -hmm. So for example, you know, big players like CVS and Walgreens are very much going to be at, at the center of how do we get everybody vaccinated. So those are things that can start now. But I, I agree with you. I am profoundly uh, worried, frightened, really, about the, the weeks ahead. Mina, well, can I add you. one quick yes, thing on that? Please let us the, medical the 10, governor. 20 seconds. Yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah. The governors are, are where a lot of the action is and they can do a lot. And I think that's what I've heard the okay. task force is doing, reaching out to them. And I, I think that's a great move. Well, that is great. I'm leaving with a note of optimism. I'm feeling more optimistic. Alexis Madrigal at The Atlantic. Thanks so much for joining us. Dr. Celine Gounder, infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist. Thanks as well for joining us. Blanca Torres, appreciate you producing this segment and our listeners for their questions and comments. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.